Welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sift through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler, and today we're going to be talking about being caught in the gaze and some of the philosophical, psychological, film theory, all sorts of other theory things about what it means to have somebody else looking at you. And there's a lot of implications to this. Uh, it was about, well, it was the, right after we recorded our last session that, that Dan and I were kicking around ideas. And I remember you said, I want to talk about Jean-Paul Sartre and the gays. And I was like, well, that's that's kind of out of left field, but that sounds pretty cool to talk about because as, as it turns out, as we're going to Taught, you know, I'll, I'll relate to you. Sartre used to be my favorite philosopher a long time ago, and I spent a lot of time thinking through this stuff. So I was actually very happy to hear you say that you wanted to talk about that. And I'm still left wondering a little bit, well, why? What, what brought that up? Was there something on your mind at that point in time that made you steer in that existentialist direction? Well, you know, we, we do this podcast slash YouTube video and radio show and you know, we look at each other and so there's always, you know, once we're on camera and we can see ourselves, um, there's that, that gaze effect upon ourselves as well as, you know, we're putting ourselves out there. But also I, I see it in like interactions in day to day. Um, I think one of the main things that I see, especially from certain pieces, we'll, we'll get into it like really significantly, but is the male gaze and yeah. the um, the reduction of of people, especially females, to kind of this you know uh, facticity and this um, you know desire motive uh, as this you know kind of physical or sexual object and not as a individual themselves and how we turn these uh, individuals into these objects or these means to our own kind of like desired ends and not having them um, at all be their own subjects to not have them uh, be ends in, in themselves. You know, it's interesting when you think about it. So Jean-Paul Sartre talks about the gays, right? Uh, his lifelong partner from, um, from college onward, uh, Simone de Beauvoir is a major existentialist figure who completed some of the work that Sartre himself didn't do. And she, she writes about feminism extensively in The Second Sex, not using the, the term the gaze, but unpacking it a bit. And you think about those two as lovers. I mean, it, Sartre is kind of harder to think about because he was not a good looker. You know, I mean, he must have had one hell of a personality. And in some ways, <laughs> when you compare him to, to anybody else, like, uh, you know, Albert Camus or uh, people like that on the scene. Um, but, you know, these, these people were together for decades. And, you know, when you think about the things that they say about the gays and about sexuality and about relationships, it makes you wonder what their own relationship must have been like living out these realities that they're they're analyzing you know that or at least it makes me think about that a good bit have you have you ever uh has that ever been on your mind i mean now it's stuck in your head right yeah absolutely <laughs> um t to a certain extent um i i definitely have not thought of it out 
it as much as you have. Uh, but yeah, the the both the the second sex on as as an individual work, um, as well as just the extent of existentialism, you know, leads to these questions of how uh, one interacts. Uh, not only with oneself and society, but like with the people that they are closest to. Yeah, that's that's very important. Um, it's not something merely abstract that you do in the classroom. You're right. It, it, the people that you are closest to, whether they're your friends and family or your neighbors or in, for many of us, our coworkers, um, that's where the real test of practical philosophy comes out, isn't it? Right. Are you going to actually act in accordance with the things that you've come to accept as the best way of moving forward and interacting with those other people? Yeah. So I, I want to say a little bit about Sartre and about this uh, this book being a nothingness because it's you know it's a big thick tome and that's where we find this really interesting discussion of the the gaze or the look in French le regard um, that that comes out of it it can be translated either way and it's it's a very dense tome right Sartre has a great facility for developing examples some of which we're going to talk about like you know the gaze coming from the farmhouse on the hill where a sniper might be waiting for you to walk out into the the field it's very concrete right very easy to to relate to and wrap your head around or the famous example which which we won't analyze here but the waiter who is being too much of a waiter which you can see today in, in coffee shops and cafes and you know restaurants here in the Milwaukee area uh, because there's still people playing that that game but his his analyses are on the one hand very deep and technical and metaphysical and on the other hand they're focused on the things that we have in everyday life that we can relate to and that's i think that's part of what makes this this book still i mean it's over half a century old um actually it's more than it's it's i think 70 set over 70 years old now right isn't it um maybe and uh... actually 80 perhaps right is it 41 i think so but it's still fresh i mean some of the terminology like you know what you do in a cafe has changed a little bit um he talks about you know a phonograph needle or something like that, that yeah I, you, we know what that is but maybe some of our younger <laughs> listeners <laughs> unless they're audiophiles <laughs> You know what? Uh, uh, vinyl is coming back. It's it's, it's been the, the most selling it has in like at least oh, 20 years. Oh, really? That's, oh, that's, yeah. That's kind of cool to, to know. Yeah. Um, in any case, this book for me, when I was a young man, was, I won't say my Bible, um, but I, I treated it with that with a similar kind of reverence that, that some people do. And I was for a while trying to live as an existentialist and a Sartrean existentialist. I was captivated by this. I, I can't claim that I actually understood everything that he said <laughs> at that point in my my career and development, but I thought there was a lot to this. And and I, you know, I connected it together with Simone de Beauvoir and I filled in some parts with some some other existentialist thinkers as well. And this, these analyses really kept, I, I remember be, where I sat in the library reading these and, and, you know, saying, wow, this is amazing stuff um, back when I was 20, 21, 22 years old. 
Yeah, it's when you first are exposed to these ideals, it really is a, a major deviation from how most of us are presented the world. And once you are presented in this way, that seems both alien, but also exceedingly salient. Yeah. And exciting. Um, too, yeah. Right? It, it, that, that whole, like, Oh, this this moment of like, like little explosions of enlightenment as you go through this is like, Oh, that's such a different way to look at that. But yeah. it also makes so much sense. Yeah. I th- that's, I mean, that's actually a great topic. Um, that applies to, well, it applies to practical philosophy. It also applies to reading great literature. Sometimes history can provoke that sort of thing. Anthropological studies, when you find out how somebody else lives and how their language is differently oriented. There's this this word that's um, that was coined by, I think, structural linguistics uh, people quite a while back called defamiliarization. And, and it's it's used to describe exactly that process. You're sitting there, it could be reading a book, it could be like listening to somebody explain something, it could be um, having a culinary experience that is kind of mind-blowing, and suddenly a whole world opens up, and it's an unfamiliar world, which could be scary, could be exciting, could be all sorts of things, but it's, de- you're, you know, to use that old expression, you're definitely not in Kansas anymore. Right. And... To some people, these are exciting experiences, and to some people, these are really kind of frightening experiences. Yeah. And part of it is how willing you are to uh, be open to those new experiences and new ways of looking at someone. And you can either, um, you know, kind of regress and go, well, I don't like, you know, uh, Caribbean food or whatever food that you've tried because, like, like it's, it's weird and it's... Uh, unfamiliar or you can you can take that jump that leap um into that new experience and uh start to experience that as uh, a new whole new world that you can like live in And, and yeah and eventually it does become a world that you're familiar with and it it can also become boring and mundane right you've been there done that too much you know um but this is how we expand our lives. And so this is a great lead in to talking about the look because the look has to do with the other. And part of what happens, let's take the culinary you know, example. Um, you go to a restaurant with one of your friends and let's say it's a diner. Actually, we'll make it really really American, really straightforward. Mm-hmm. You always order the same thing. Like for me, my go-to in diners is a patty melt with fries and then a bowl of chili that I can dip the fries into. And I, I like that, you know, it's, it's very homey. It, it's got all the different things that I am kind of into, but I'll also try other stuff. You know, if I see something cool, that's a special, I'll be, Oh, that, that, that sounds kind of nice. Um, but let's say I'm the kind of person who's really stuck with my, my, my regular thing, my, what are the, what do we call that? Your usual, right? Yeah. Uh, so you and I are at the diner and you're like, Hey, um, have you tried this thing? You know, and you point- tried eggs with kimchi. Well, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's, I, you know, I've had that, but I've had it pretty late in my life. It's not something that I stumbled my way into. Right. Where did you, where did you have it? Where, what was the experience for you? I don't know if I've actually had directly eggs with kimchi, but I've had like 
Um, oh, there used to be a, a little restaurant on the east side here in Milwaukee that um, had a kimchi bowl as a part of their like diner breakfast. It was, oh, yeah, yeah, interesting. So you you say, hey, why don't you try this? I like it, and I you know. I could say no to it. I'm going to stick with what I know that I like. And then I never I never have that experience, that possible experience. And when I do have it, I might feel that it really is weird and foreign to me because I'm – who would associate those, those, those two things together? Eggs, that's fine with bacon or um, what, else, what are other vegetable things? Hash browns. Can, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. No. Not kimchi, you know. <laughs> right. Um, what is all, kimchi? Kimchi is only for <laughs> Korean food, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but you know, if I, if I do lend myself to it, then I can have this unfolding of experience and I can have it because you have said, this is a possibility. You've, you've opened up my world a little bit. It's not just me like looking at stuff on my phone, which, which is also others, you know, I mean, the, the words and pictures didn't just get there by, at least at this point, by some AI putting them there. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> um, Maybe there's maybe. another, yeah. Maybe there's another conversation to have about that down the yeah. line. Um, but so, so the other plays a really central role, and you know, when when I try that eggs with kimchi, I can like go off by myself and not be in front of you while I'm doing it, so that my facial expression doesn't betray uh, my unfamiliarity or my joy or my anguish or anything like that. If I am doing it in front of you, you're seeing me eating right. and tasting and doing this very human activity, and I'm in a certain way subject to you, mm-hmm. right? You you could say, "What's wrong with you? What's what's that look on your face about?" <laughs> yeah, I'm going to take this in a, a slightly different uh, way because okay. uh, when I was younger, I um, you know. Made some a couple of like you know stupid stupid student films of which one was like a, a mashup of, of um, <laughs> Macbeth and Monty Python's Holy Grail. Oh wow! And and so I I, I showed this to my father, and I, I I edited the film. I've seen it a number of times. I don't need to watch it anymore. Yeah. And I sat there and just watched him, and I I noticed that he was watching me watching him. And being aware of me watching him and like, like, what are you going to do? I was like, your, your child is sitting here. He has worked on something, spent a lot of time on it and is waiting for your like either eventual approval or disapproval. And no longer can you as the father, like be totally objective and do the thing, but you are now uh, being watched uh, in this like, the dynamic of a fa- uh, father and child in in a piece of thing, and so it's it's muddled and it's not um, it's not any more pure because you are now being that object of viewing. Now, did you also have the experience of like maybe being a little bit nervous about showing it to him because you know you felt it was cool up until that point and then you you do show it to him and you're like holy crap that's me on there <laughs> and i don't know if he's going to like it or not um i actually hadn't really thought about that one i was interested <laughs> in his reaction but i wasn't too worried that much about that reaction yeah uh, and partly because i had already shown it to another pe- a number of people who enjoyed it and i guess i wasn't 
too wrapped up in the the specific approval of my father. Yeah, but you could have been. Right? I could have been, absolutely. So I got to ask before we go on, does this film still exist out there somewhere, like on it, the internet? I, I do have a copy of it, but it's not on the internet currently. Okay. I I took part in a... Um, it was. It wasn't a student production. It was a bunch of us professors, and it was at Fayetteville State University when the um, the director of communications had gotten his hands on some cameras and like a studio and stuff like that. And they were like expanding, and he wanted to create. I don't exactly remember what the movie was about. All I remember is I had a scene where I I walked in and um, shot the the chair of another department. And um, then we like, you know, took his body and and uh, put it somewhere. I'm very hazy on on all the details. And so um, they gave me like a fake gun and they used some really horrible special effects in in the the editing to like, you know, try to make blood, you know, and, and make like a something like a gunshot. And so I, w- I went in and I, w- I don't remember why I was supposed to be, you know, pressuring him but i didn't get what i wanted and so i pulled a gun and and shot him and um i i walked in the way i normally walk and i don't really pay attention to how i walk you know but i was being video recorded and um, later on my now wife then fiance said as she was watching this this uh, youtube clip she's like wow you really walk thuggish and i was like what do you mean (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and she said, I mean, you had it down perfect for that scene. And I was like, well, I wasn't trying to walk thuggish. I was just walking the way I walk. And then I started then I started getting a little bit self-conscious after that about, you know, looking at myself. How do I walk? <laughs> <laughs> and it's because of, you know, old injuries, like, you know, one of my ankles is a little bit shot and stuff like that. Um <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, I think there's lots and lots of examples of like revealing who we are when we're actually being recorded or looked at or however we want to put it. Yeah. Was it, was it you being watched as an individual or is it you being like kind of unconsciously being method in your uh, acting there? No, I was, I was actually just trying to like get the scene done. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it just so happened that the way my body works uh, made me appear to be that way, you know. And so did you become self-conscious when uh, Andy said this to you? Yeah, I, I started looking at how I walked. And, and actually, this does illustrate, your question does illustrate something. So whenever we have, let's call it a presentation, something that can be interpreted by another person, something that can be looked at. It's always ambiguous in the sense that, you know, we would like to, we would like things to be one way. So I'm, you know, I get up in front of my class and I'm teaching and I'm going to be a professor now. And, you know, this is a serious business, although we'll joke around at appropriate points, you know, and usually that works for me in the classroom. But I've seen some people who walk into the classroom and it is just chaos. The students don't respond to them or respect them. And it's a very different situation. And And you can see them trying to you know put something out there that the other people are in effect rejecting or replacing with 
with something different, right? And aging has also shown me uh, the old, like the older you get, uh, I'm finding the less people pay attention to you, which is kind of nice sometimes, right? You can easily slip by. Nobody's looking at you and trying to size you up or anything. Um, but we're always caught in this play of like, you know, I want to be seen this way. Other people want to see you a different way. Um, and we can't control how other people view us or what right. interpretations they, they put onto us. And so... Maybe we should talk about being objects. Yeah, yeah. The view of others. So, uh, would you? Um, we've got this thing being seen by other, uh, by another, is an irreducible fact that cannot be decided or just sorry deduced from the other as object or by my being as subject. I was hoping that you would elaborate on those terms. Yeah. So, being seen by another is is just what it is it's it's uh another person having me in their gaze but but the way that sartre in being a nothingness is using the gaze it's a it's not just an experience it's a structure of our existence and it's, it's always there whether somebody's looking at us or not it's always potentially there and the, the we can you know when we're looking at other people like I'm looking at you on a screen right now, you're you're existing as an object for me with a bunch of properties, but you're also not just an object because if you were, you would be a mannequin or a robot or or you could be a computer generated image. And if if all I think you're just a computer generated image, like an NPC in a uh, you know video game or something like that, unless I perceive that intentionality that agency in a certain sense coming from you, which which isn't there in any of the stuff I'm looking at. It's not there in your eyeballs. It's not there in your shirt. It's not there in any of that sort of stuff. It's, it's a structure of our way of being in the world that we grasp some things as, as having whatever you want to call it, a soul, a spirit, a mind, an intention. And we can be wrong too. Like we can walk into, I, I used to have this experience when I was working security at Lakeland College, second shift. I was the second shift commander. And the worst thing was having to go into the theater because you'd have to patrol the whole area. And they had this room way up on top. And it was where they kept like, you know, clothes and I don't know, all the accoutrements that go with stuff. But they had mannequins in there and it was dark. And you'd walk in there and it was so creepy <laughs> <You know? laughs> because even though you would tell yourself, okay, these are just mannequins, you know, if you've seen enough horror movies or, or shows, mannequins sometimes come to life and it's hard to keep yourself from not projecting that out there onto them, even though you know cognitively these are just mannequins. These are just wood or plastic or whatever they are, right? So, so this is something, you know, we look at the other as an object and we also understand ourselves as subjects, but it, this is all reversible. Mm -hmm. So I look at you, you're looking at me. There's like a song that goes like that. I don't remember what the song is, but... Um, the, the the fact that I can see you as another person means that I can be swept up in your gaze. Right. And objectified myself. And now you are aware of my own 
subjectivity because right. you are aware that I see you as a potential object. And in order for that to be true, I would have to be a subject myself. Yeah. And, you know, the way that Sartre describes it is is quite interesting. He says that another person reorients the world. He, he describes it like he's, he's usually pretty um, pessimistic about this. You know, the other person is like a hole that's sucking being into that that spot. <laughs> Right. Um, but there's something to that. Like you're doing your own thing. Think about the workplace, right? You're doing your own thing on your computer and you're lost in your work. And then so- suddenly somebody comes behind you and they're talking over you at your shoulder about what operation you should do instead of the way that you're doing things on the keyboard. And suddenly it's no longer just like your computer, your keyboard, your world. That object, even though you're the one still in charge with your fingers on the keyboard, has been in a certain sense contaminated by the other the other person coming in and messing around, right? And even even when they're gone, they're still kind of looking over your shoulder right. in, in your head. <laughs> they, they usurp part of your like, I don't know, your equanimity in doing yeah. the things that you want to do with your own self and your own uh, I guess workspace or objects in this uh, example. Yeah. So, you know, another thing that, that Sartre says that I think is really kind of uh, fascinating and, and is important is that the look is not in the eyeballs. So I can, he actually, I think goes too far with this. He says, you know, if I can, if I look at your eyeballs and I appreciate them as eyeballs, I can't, I can't perceive the gaze coming at me. And I think he's, he's probably wrong about that. Um, but, it isn't just in the eyes because you could be turned around and I could be not facing you and still think you're looking at me. Mm-hmm. Or to use the example that he has about the farmhouse during war, that farmhouse up on the hill, it could be vacant, but it could also be where a sentry is posted and they are watching me. And within a minute, they're going to be calling down artillery on, on my position or shooting at me with, with a rifle or who knows what else heading, heading around to capture me. It and, could extend it to like any sense in which uh, I am perceiving you as an object. And so right. hearing you, um, if, you know, with the, the, our expanded, um, Sensorium, you could call yeah, it. Yeah, of, of, of technology. Oh, uh, right, Now we, we right. have a whole new plethora of, of abilities to sense people. We might present that as visual data on a screen, but that is like from senses that are beyond our natural ability. But we're still like perceiving these things um, in a way that is not directly through the eyeball. Uh, yeah. And, you know, even like, you know, you're... Uh, you know, think of, you know, being in the dark with, you know, uh, your uh, lover partner and you, you can't really see it. It's like, say it's pitch dark, but you are you're still perceiving this person through touch and, yeah. you know, whatnot. Well, and you could still actually worry about what you look like in the dark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? or, or what you feel like. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, um, to, to talk about technological things, you know, we could expand this and say the look is not in the camera it, it it's mediated through the camera like when you're when your webcam goes on and you see that whatever color light it is like on mine it's a green light because i have apple stuff it might be a different color on others mine's blue it's telling you somebody's some somebody something's looking at you right, right. and you whether whether anybody's on the other end or not 
um, it can be a little disconcerting. I mean, that's why people put up fake security cameras. Right. Because this, this uh, it, it doesn't even have to be a genuine look. You can just make people think that they're, they're being watched. Yeah, are we, are we jumping the gun to Foucault here? Or? Well, do you want to jump down to that, talking about this uh, panopticon concept, and we'll come back to some of the other stuff uh, as as we we go on. I mean, this is uh, this is for 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 our society. This is really yeah. a key so, idea. Yeah, sure. Let's, let's jump. So we're talking about surveillance society to a certain well, not to a certain extent. We ex- this is exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and so, like, I'm most familiar with uh, Michel Foucault's um, working of his panopticon uh, from Discipline and Punish. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the the panopticon is described as a prison in which there are uh, circular floors um, and an open like uh, mezzanine. Not or the, the all the floors are in mezzanines and they are overlooked by a central pillar that has a uh, viewing port for the guards and the guards mm-hmm. can look out of the sport and into any one of the cells at any one time. But the slats are designed in such a way that they can look out, but the prisoners cannot look in. And so not only are the prisoners could be uh, viewed at any moment, but uh, even if they are not, they have the perception of always being watched because they never right, know right. when they are not being watched. Yeah. And so the whole idea here is that we have a system in which the people are self-policing because they don't know if they are being watched or not. Yeah. And I think he, he also talks about this as like uh, religions often use the idea of a all-seeing God as a you know, a, a panopticon to maintain certain um, societal norms and uh, making sure people follow the rules. Yeah, Foucault was less concerned about that in particular, the religious aspect, and much more about what happens in our own society as we adopt these um, these sort of features, right? And, and what's interesting, so in, in, in the original Panopticon, it's Jeremy Bentham, the great utilitarian philosopher who comes up with the plan and, and actually suggests it as a prison reform that he wants to see in England. He is very angry about the fact that they rejected it and attributed it to the aristocrats wanting to keep things back in the dark ages and, you know, basically keep, keep things the way they were. And it was, it was intended not to be something just to like look at people to screw with them or make them neurotic, which, which it did, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but to, like you said, to, to get them to self police. So you get a criminal to not only quit being criminal because they don't want to get punished, but to start policing themselves, right? So this is this is quite an, an idea. And um, there, Bentham also had something else built into it that I think often gets lost. And it, it goes back to the old question with Plato's Republic, who will guard the guardians, Right. So Bentham's answer is that it will be public officials who will be watching these guards because, you know, if you know some prison guards, you know that they will sometimes abuse power uh, and, and just mess with people to mess with people. So you have to have some watchers of the watchers and then public opinion. So Bentham imagined like back in his day, they didn't have TV or anything, but you would you would like have tours and, and people could come through and watch what the guards are doing. So the watchers are being watched 
watched while they watch the watchies, you could say. <laughs> and um, the few places where this was tried, it, it it did not have the effects that Bentham thought it would. In fact, it made people very paranoid. <laughs> it made them compliant, but it also tended to deform the personality. Now, Foucault says... We don't actually have to have prisons where things are set up this way. We can have, like you said, a disciplinary society. Bentham, by the way, didn't just think that this should, should apply to prisons. He thought it should apply to workshops where people are. Imagine like, you know, uh, you're, you're working in the factory and somebody's watching you all the time. Which is just I, it, horrible you know, for me because I do significantly worse when people are at, watching at my job while someone is watching me, especially if like someone is watching with a critical eye. Yeah. Like if I have a, um, a colleague and we're working on something together, that's fine. But if I have like a boss that is looming, <laughs> um, and watching and judging, yep. and then yep. all of a sudden, like I, I can't like, you know, turn a screwdriver. Correct. <laughs> It's it's a self what they call a self fulfilling prophecy, right? You're being watched just in case you screw up, and it makes you more likely to screw up. Right. Um, so yeah, so workhouses, hospitals. You know, you don't want people messing around with their bandages, or you know, you don't want people doing things they're not supposed to do off in the dark corners. Um, schools. Bentham thought this could be okay for for schools, and so. Coming back to the disciplinary society, if we think about workers, right? What is the what are the biggest complaints about some of the places where people um, can get jobs and have to, you know, endure a lot of watching? Um, you know, you you have to be monitored in terms of GPS or how often you take a bathroom break or how fast you're getting things done, and it really. Um, it, you know, it really makes for an unpleasant work experience. Places like Amazon, for example, right. you know, been in the news because of that. I would say that is part of the disciplinary society, the way Foucault was talking about, um, you know, in, in the workplace or in schools. You know, they're, my kids have so much data on them. You know, when we were when we were young, I I can't speak for Dan because Dan is a bit younger than me. There was always this threat of this is going to go into your permanent <laughs> record, and it would be something that would be typed or written down and go into like a folder, and you could probably go and, and physically destroy it if you got your hands on it. And then computers came in, and maybe your permanent record would be in the computer. Um, now there's like tons and tons and tons of data about these these kids and what's going on with them in school in some schools and and. and, and not just like schools because we now live in an age where oh yeah we all have like cameras uh, in our pockets and we have social media and the ability to post this stuff and i don't know about you but <laughs> i did some stupid things when i was a teenager that i am very much happy that i don't have any uh you know tangible record of it because we are all dumb when we were teenagers you know I first got onto social media when I was around 40, and it's probably a good thing that I waited that long in my life. <laughs> and also, like, on a mild tangent, I, I think there's, um, like, I'm happy that I didn't have it, but I don't also think that people are going to stop caring, especially as 
the people that grew up with that as part of their lives yeah. uh, become the adults. And so I think the the only place where it's a particular issue is the the people that that grew up without it having places of positions of power and judging those who did have it um, because now they can say like you know I don't have any of this but you do and so I can kind of like tut tut you without oh. actually uh, having yeah. any of this own uh, available to you know put down my own self. Yeah, I mean, I kind of think that some of the people who didn't grow up with the internet and social media, um, not all of them. I mean, I'm I'm in that group myself, but many are are really terrible at at understanding and using it. Um, and I also think that the younger generations are also, on the large part, um, pretty terrible in using it and understanding it as well, <laughs> just in different ways. You know, um, yeah. I mean, you think about the stuff that we do post and the fact that it's out there now forever. You know, and anybody can look at it. Anybody can bring it under their their gaze. Um, you know, uh, for example, there there were some. I think it was at Marquette recently. There was a a, a, a young woman who was accepted and then was told not to not to come by the administration because of her racist remarks in social media. You know, things like that can can get out there and haunt you. Um, and, you know, some people may say, well, you know, good, that's that's the way it should work. Um, but there's all sorts of much more innocuous stuff that we do that and going back to to Sartre, anything that we do can be interpreted in ways that we wouldn't want it interpreted by somebody else who's brought us within their gaze. Right. They can turn us into an object that we're not happy with. Right. Uh, and so I want to go a little bit back to like the surveillance society in that. Like, yeah. Yeah. It used to be that like, you want to take London, a look at it, right? <laughs> yeah. That, that London was kind of like the, the poster child because they had put up such a, a large amount of CCTVs. Right. Yeah. Um, but they were, they're all like kind of poster, like a uh, man by humans. Yeah. So there's like people like, you know, big old banks of cameras and you're just watching that or you can like play back if you had like someone say like there was a crime at this one time and place. Yeah. But that's kind of nothing compared to the, the advent of our at least uh, AIs that are allowed to like uh, uh, create um, object detection. You know, they're literally objectifying people. Um Right, through right. programmatic uh, algorithms, and then also like you know, I guess to take China as an example, uh, applying like social scores to them. So it's not right. just like your your peers or your your close neighbors or families that are are uh, watching and objectifying you, but your uh, the entire society. Yeah, we should we should so for our our listeners who don't know what we're talking about there. It's called the social credit system. Right. And it's been around for a while and it was optional at first, but optional in the sense like everybody should volunteer. And if you don't, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. What, what do you have to lose if you, if you don't do it? And the, you know, it was tied in. So imagine if your Facebook account and Twitter and whatever other social media, Instagram were also connected with your school records, connected with your work HR records. Your banking um, records, banking, yeah, your, your travel your, stuff, uh, your, uh, how well you 
are a good neighbor and or a right. partner to your any of your relationships. Maybe even like when it comes to school records, how your kids are doing too. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, right. And, and so this is all placed into one big system, which determines things like, are you okay to travel from province to province? Or are you, you know, one of those people they should keep an eye on? Um, we have, you know, quite a few networks, but fortunately our networks are not well integrated like this. You know, this is something like out of a sci-fi movie, but, but it's, it's building its way into active existence. And that may be a, an issue for us here as well. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're always building systems that are like a little bit more and more integrated. And, um, you know, there are some uh, states and cities that have uh, proactively said like we're right, not right. going to do any like facial recognition um, but there's so much like uh, want from potential policing or whatnot to actually have these systems in place that I feel yeah. like at, eventually unless there's some really hard pushback these systems are going to be implemented you know and I was uh, let me ask you because you're you're you know more of a tech guy than I am and in, in Many different ways. Um, so the big tech companies, you know, we think about the the big five: Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, and Apple. Um, all of them have these kind of hegemonic desires to you know control everything. They often frame it in very nice ways, like "Oh, we just want to be involved in every area of your life," you know, and make your life wonderful. But it, you know, when you watch them fighting against each other, it's clear that they're they're trying to dominate space. And so, you know, just like is with like the food and beverage industry, so many of the other things that we're used to using belong to these companies. So Microsoft owns Skype and owns LinkedIn and owns a whole bunch of other things as well. Um, you know, Google, a whole variety of things, right? From, from uh, uh, YouTube to uh, search engine to, you, you, you know, Google Suite that we use in all the educational uh, institutions that I work. Um, and we could go on and on and on, right? Amazon, in this case, has, has the, uh, um, the doorbell thing. Is that, is that uh, Link? Uh, ring. Ring, yeah. I was, I was, uh, they they serve like you know two thirds of the internet with AWS, and yeah. you know they own uh, Whole Foods, and you know there's there's so many places, touch places where they can gather more information to create a better profile of you. And that's exactly what they've been doing, right? They have been. We are objects for these big tech companies, and you know i i kind of so here i'm going to throw this out and i want to see you you run with it you you brought up like police wanting to have surveillance powers it seems like where the real um catalyst for that would come would be these big tech companies that have these things in place and then could like turn them over to policing so we might not end up with one vast single system of social credit but maybe we end up with something that's like a piecemeal one. Like my, my Google score or my Amazon score. Yeah. I mean, does yeah. that seem, what do you think? Is that something, a dystopian future that we have to look out for? Or? Uh, I think it, it is, especially because uh, it seems like in the last uh, decade or so, the, the biggest uh, revenue generator is to create the closest models for hmm. uh, each individual user in order to uh, serve them, you know, targeted ads. Yeah. And that, that is like the the major uh 
profit generator for the vast majority of these companies that are data first, which like all these big five are uh, to a greater or lesser extent uh, kind of data first uh, organizations. And uh, yeah, if, at, at some point in time, if you know, the government wants to start building these things, they, they already have it like ready served. And you know, those it's, we're entering into these or, or uh, these um, arrangements with these companies through just like you know contract law, um, which doesn't you know right, apply right. to like the Fourth Amendment. And once it's you know out there and someone has it, they can you know potentially give it over to the government because it wasn't the government that was searching and seizing that, but uh, it was given to someone else, third party, uh, through your own free will. Quotation marks. Yeah, that's interesting. So we inhabit a very different environment, you could say, one that's that's mediated through vast server banks and algorithms and things like that, way beyond what Sartre was was worried about, or even even maybe Michel Foucault. You know, um, he died back in the early eighties. Um, he didn't. Yeah, he could see some of the the writing on the wall, but. Um, Certainly not not anything like where we are now, right? Let's, we we kind of live in a, um, you know, some of the sci-fi writers' like greatest worries, but we're like, hey, <laughs> it's, it's fun. I get my packages in two days, and uh, I've got uh, you know all the things on the internet, all the world's knowledge, and all the world's you know comedy and stupidity all at my fingertips. It's really fun. Yeah, that's true. Well, there, there's a devil's bargain there, right? Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about before we run out of uh, time, and maybe we come back to start later if we have the time. But let's talk about the male gaze because I know that was something that was motivating you to to uh, talk about this in the first place. Um, I mean, this isn't a radically new concept. I think Simone de Beauvoir is talking about something like this in the Second Sex, and others were before. But the, the term the male gaze is kind of new or relatively new. I mean, older than you, um, just a little bit, you know, younger than me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, like, at least within uh, film theory, um, it's this idea of, you know, um, most film, at least in the, like, the 70s when this idea was being proposed that you know we have three major gazes of that the perspective of the man behind the camera the perspective of the male characters in the film story and the perspective of the male spectator gazing at the movie and images as the major audiences for the uh, type of images that are being shown and it's uh, like what what is pleasing to that male eye um, and mm. mostly it is you know a reducing a, a female to you know an object of desire specifically uh, sexual yeah and and you know this is again something that has been going on for a very long time that notion sex sells and advertising was a way of expressing this, I would say. And, you know, there's a book called The Hidden Persuaders written back in the 50s that goes into this in, in great depth, you know, using psychoanalysis to, to explain it. Um, I, I kind of think, as you were talking about that, 
you see this a lot in the seventies. You see this a lot in the eighties and in the movies there. And I think, I don't think it's, it's changed all that much in movies. That's still pretty male gaze centered. Um, there's some notable exceptions and there's sometimes like turning the tide. Like, you know, think about the movie, the full Monty where women get to look at naked guys mm-hmm. um, or, you know, the female the, gaze. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the people talk about that, but sometimes some people say, well, the female gaze is basically just like changing the male gaze around. It's still the same structure. Somebody's looking at somebody else and objectifying them. Um, yeah, just to continue with that, like to objectify someone as a object of desire, yeah. of ownership, um, of something to be won as a competition for prestige or for dominance. Yeah. So, I mean, what do you what do you make of this? Is this connected with Sartre's uh, view of the gaze, or is this something additional? Does this tie in at all with the the worries that we were expressing about panopticonism? and surveillance um i kind of see these as, as interconnected myself i would agree especially because uh, like not only does it like reinforce um kind of like certain notions of what a a woman should be but also for the <clears throat> the woman it, it creates the um, object or the uh, idea of like, well, what what should I be if I if this is the idea of the ideal? Um, do I need to uh, modify myself in order to placate these things, or hide uh, parts of myself, or yeah, right? Uh, <clears throat> which is you know, I guess male centered instead of like you know my own uh, subject centered. Yeah. So what do we mean by subject-centered in that that case? That that's a really important idea, uh, and it connects back to existentialism. This notion that you aren't just an object, you aren't just what people see you as or classify you as. Um, but you're being also a subject. Yeah. What is it? So what is being a subject? What does that mean? Um, I I would uh, defer to the professor at the moment. <laughs> Okay, I was looking to elicit some some springboard. I mean, part of it is is I guess you could say, part of it is the capacity to choose for yourself how you want to be looked at, right? Um, I mean, you you can't define yourself totally, and and I think the existentialists are right about this. They you can't like say, well, I'm you know a fifty one year old uh, kind of out of shape guy. Everyone should look at me as if I'm a 21 year old Greek god statue. You know that that's that's ridiculous. Or um, I want everyone to see me as a um, five foot one um, Frenchman with a beret, even though I'm not wearing a beret. Okay, there's some things that are ridiculous that way, but I, I do think that there is a lot of um, putting people into categories and defining them and this is this this does work along power differentials so that means that it does work along matters of class or authority or in this case gender and so there i mean today we still have a lot of schools where take for example dress codes you know this is a prime example of worries about the gays um in in you know middle schools and high schools my my own 
uh, oldest daughter used to complain about this a lot. There's this emphasis on girls not wearing revealing clothing because that draws the male gaze and can distract them, can provoke reactions. And there's very little holding of the, the male students accountable for the fact that they can, they can direct where they want their eyeballs to go, you know? Right. And um, a lot of things that are okay for male students to get away wearing aren't, aren't considered okay for female students. I would say that that's a, an expression of this, and interestingly, it's not just men who are imposing this. It's also, uh, you know, women principals and women teachers, and you know, mothers and and people like that who are enforcing these these notions of modesty that Mary Wollstonecraft kind of blew up back in the, you know, seventeen seventeen nineties. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I I mean I think that's part of it being able to have some stake in how you're going to be looked at. Um, but I mean, there's and, more and to part it. of that is like the, the roles that you are presented with as, you know, at least right. you know, w- w- looking at what is acceptable in society and the, the roles that you are given as a position within that society and kind of like, uh, this kind of brings up the, the Bechtel test, which is the idea of like in this old idea, like there's like, you're either a wife or like a, a object desire, um, uh, or you're or, like, or a you're secretary, look, right? Yeah, and um, and most of these films and TV don't have any women that actually just talk to each other about things that weren't like about a man. And so right, the Bechtel right. test is three parts of it. You have to have at least two pe- women, named women specifically, um, in the the piece who talk to each other about something besides a man, um, and. That is like a, a minimum to bringing someone out of uh, this, you know, very narrow kind of myopic view of what women can be in this media. Yeah, and so that affects film and television. I, I guess we could say it, it. It also affects maybe radio, um, depending on what the show is oriented towards. Um, I also kind of think that in our so, you know, we brought up this this digital age that we're in with mobile technology and, you know, an Internet that is spread over the entire world and, and exists, you know, everywhere and nowhere. Um, so, you know, images that people have of gender relations, you know, and partic- particularly sexuality, um, we get quite distorted views through um you know, things like say, say, you know, mainstream pornography, right? But, but also equally through advertising. And it's, um, you know, it's still pretty widespread. Um, that's, that's not radically changing. And it leads to a lot of miserable people. And this, this kind of comes back to Jean Paul Sartre's view of the gays. You know, we could view it as like a call to responsibility. You know, he's got that famous thing of you're looking through the, the keyhole and, and, you know, you're like, he says out of vice, um, what vice, jealousy, or or curiosity, right? So you're 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 looking at somebody doing something that you know you're 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 not supposed to be watching, and then suddenly you hear somebody behind you, and he says, you know, it could maybe not it's not it's not somebody, it's just a floor creaking, but you yeah. you you're you know you're tense suddenly, right? Because and now you're the object of someone else's exactly exactly, and so there's there's a lot of this. Um, you know, looking at other people, but also then measuring ourselves in relation to that. 
And so, you know, unrealistic ideas about um, what we should look like in terms of our our nether parts, you know, uh, have been an issue. But also, interestingly enough, um, I mean, that people have been reporting this. the The rate of young men having body dysmorphia and like going to the gym and working out a lot and still feeling like they're not big enough, they're you know, they're not defined enough. Um, I'd say that that's come about because of the internet age as well. And something else that we were talking about before we started the show, there has been a recent boom in plastic surgery since the pandemic. Why is that? Well, people are seeing themselves and they're seeing themselves as they would be seeing themselves through the eyes of another, through Zoom, Skype, Google Meet. Um, I don't know what else other people use for video conferencing. (laughs) Dan, you would know more than I would. Uh, what's it? There? There's Jitsi, there's Microsoft Teams, there's a, a number of others. Yeah, there you go. I think I blanked out on Microsoft Teams because I dislike using it so much. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 people have been seeing themselves in these meetings, and then they think, I should get some plastic surgery. I don't look as good as I should. Now, are they coming to that idea just by themselves, or are they doing that because they're looking at themselves through the eyes of of others and finding themselves not to be good enough. Could be both. Could be uh, people actually saying something or, or like this whole just always seeing and being seen. Yeah. In, in a way that we would not in a, a normal interaction. I mean, we don't really know. All we do know is that the industry, plastic surgery, is worried that the boom is going to end as people move move back into like offices. So that's an interesting thing to to you know cap it all off, I'd say. Or we've just created a, a whole new generation of narcissists. I hope not, because narcissists are high maintenance, <laughs> right? <laughs> and who's got the energy for that? Not me. Got too much going on. Yeah, me, me too. I mean, I, can, I don't want a, a classroom full of narcissists myself. No. Well, should we wrap it up? What do you think? Yeah. So uh, today, we leave you with the words of Jean-Paul Sartre. Man is always separated from what he is by all the breadth of being which he is not. 